Well, we are glad you're here with us this morning, and I want to remind you uh, that we would love to have you with us next weekend. Uh, Saturday is Christmas Eve, and we have three services on Christmas Eve, 3 o'clock, 4.15, which will uh, have a nursery provided, and 5.30, and so we hope to see you and your family and your friends and those you might invite to join us. And those, for those who desire to worship with us on Christmas Day, we will have a service at 11 o'clock on Christmas Day. No life groups or children's ministry, so we'll all be here in the sanctuary together. I also want to make mention of our Bible reading plan. Uh, we had a Bible reading plan for the church uh, to participate in in 2022, and that was going through the New Testament in 2023. We'll be going through some of the Old Testament and Psalms and Proverbs, and so if you do not have a plan that you're already planning to use, uh, we'd love for you to sign up and be a part of that Bible reading plan with us. And on Sunday mornings, what we do is we look uh, to the scripture. This morning, we are looking at Luke chapter 24, uh, the last chapter of the gospel of Luke. And uh, this is as we have been looking at the resurrection text uh, for uh, the Christmas season, which might be something that you find interesting for us to talk about at this time of year. But we need to understand that the manger must be approached with the throne in view. The manger must be approached with the throne in view. This is something you know if you are a student of the Bible. You can't disconnect the manger, the cross, the empty tomb, and the throne. It all goes together. But what you will find if you attend church for some time, if you um, talk to people who profess to be Christians, is that there are a lot of people who do not get how it all connects together. They probably really ne never studied the Bible. Perhaps that's you. Your faith is more of a, a sentimental faith, one that you practice at holidays like Christmas and Easter and maybe Mother's Day. Uh, that's probably not those of you who are here with us today because you'd be coming not next Saturday uh, instead of today unless you're just really get ahead of, the, ahead of the game and good for you if so and come next Saturday as well. But you can grow up going to church. You can be a regular church goer. You can even teach the Bible and not really study the Bible. And being a student of the word makes all the difference. Why? Because they are Jesus's words and they are the words of God that point us to Jesus. In fact, let's look at his words, Luke chapter 24, I'm gonna begin reading in verse 13 and we'll just kinda make our way through most of the rest of this chapter of the Bible. Luke chapter 24, verse 13 says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So that very day means the same day that the tomb was found empty. Two of them, which we'll learn later, means two of the disciples of Jesus. Luke will identify one of these men as Cleopas, and he leaves the other one unidentified. You need to understand that there weren't just 11 disciples of Jesus. Yes, there were the 12 who followed him closely, uh, and the 11 that stuck around after his death. Um, but he had more disciples than that, and uh, there were many who saw him alive, uh, at least 500 according to the Apostle Paul. These two are headed to a village named Emmaus, whose location we actually don't know today. Uh, we do know that it was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they're talking about what is taking place. Verse 15 says, 
while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So this could mean that they couldn't recognize the risen Jesus. But I actually think that it shows their spiritual blindness at this point. The passive language here seems to indicate that God kept them from recognizing him until the moment he wanted them to. If you go back to the Old Testament, Elisha prayed that the Lord would open the eyes of his servant and God did open his eyes. So this is familiar language to the Bible. You need to understand that it is not that people are stupid, it's that they are blind, It's not that people are spiritually incapable of understanding, it's that they are spiritually blind to understanding. Now, I would not go around telling people that. It's not that you're stupid, it's that you're blind. I wouldn't do that. But that is something you and I need to be aware of. I I, I think often we look at the world and the culture and how they approach certain issues, maybe political issues, and we need to understand that it's not that they are not intelligent, It's that their eyes have not been opened to see the things of God that we have come to see. And so the answer isn't belittling them in a discussion about intellect, but it's helping them to see what God wants them to see. I I think that the church often gets this wrong in issues like this. We'll we'll take the issue of sexuality, for example, where we uh, see people who do not see sexuality, human sexuality, the way that God intended it to be or the way that we now see it to be. And the reality is they are spiritually blind to the things of God. And so our approach is not necessarily so much of an intellectual argument about sexuality as much it is helping them to see what God sees for them. If you are married to a non-believer, their eyes are not open to what you see. If you have coworkers who are not Christians or neighbors who are not Christians, they are spiritually blind. We need our eyes to be opened. And we will see what, what happens or what opens their eyes as we read on. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? Jesus asked them what they are talking about. And they're sad. And that's when one of them says, do you really not know what happened? I mean, it'd be like as if there was a US election going on and somebody's like, hey, what is all this yapping on the news right now? This shows, by the way, that Luke understood when he wrote this gospel that readers would be aware of Jesus's death and the controversy surrounding his death and following his death. Obviously, Jesus is well aware, but he's teaching them. That's why he says, verse 19, and he said to them, what things? Now, it's hard for me not to think that there was a slight smirk on Jesus's face as he asked this. Tell me more about what happened. And they said to him, Um, Sorry, I lost my place there. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. 
They call Jesus a prophet, which is not a derogatory uh, title for Jesus, since Jesus himself uh, referred to him at, or referred to himself as a prophet. That was one of the roles that he fulfills as prophet, priest, and king, the ultimate prophet. They say we had hoped that he was the one. You see, there were expectations of Israel for this Messiah to come and to deliver Israel once again to uh, a political independence and to an earthly um, position. There were even expectations of the disciples that Jesus would build his ministry, would build his kingdom, and it would be one that they would benefit from and that they would be seen as right uh, by those who dissented from what they believed or argued with what they believed. Even after the resurrection, in Acts chapter one, it tells us the disciples were looking for an earthly kingdom. They asked Jesus, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? They're saying, we had hoped that he was the one, but the chief priest and the rulers won. And it is the third day. Now, they didn't fully understand the significance of the third day, but there were prophecies about the third day. Hosea chapter six, verse one and two says, come let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. But Jesus died and nothing has happened. But our interest is intrigued because of what some women are saying. Verse 22, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So they say, Jesus, we know it was women and you can't really trust them for their word. I'm not saying that, that's just what they're saying. But then our friends went and verified the tomb was empty. But we don't see Jesus. We don't really know what to make of all of this. And Jesus doesn't let them go on any further. Verse 25 says, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, it's translated as foolish ones in our English translation, which is probably too strong of a word for what that word means today. Jesus is saying, oh, not understanding ones. And then he says, slow of heart to believe. Don't you believe the scriptures? Don't you believe the Bible? The Bible tells us, the scriptures tell us, it was necessary that the Christ would suffer and enter into his glory. And then, beginning with Moses and the prophets, beginning with the law and the prophets, Jesus opened the Bible and interpreted to them the scriptures that concerned him. He said, open a Genesis. Here I am. Now turn to Exodus. There's me. Now open to those prophets whose names you can't pronounce. Yet I am there too. You see, the entire Bible is about Jesus. The entire Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. 
Mark Strauss says that here, school is in session as Jesus takes them through the Old Testament, showing them that all the scriptures point to the coming of Christ. He is the center point of salvation history. Jesus did not begin his existence with his life on earth. He has existed eternally as God, as God the creator, and entered into human history as the man, Jesus Christ. But he has existed and ministered before this. The entire Bible is about Jesus. I'm gonna show you four things about the Bible and how it is about Jesus. Number one, he is involved in creation. Jesus is involved in creation. In Genesis chapter one, Jesus is there. We see that the spirit of God was hovering over the earth. So this idea of God being triune and father, son, and spirit is not something that manifested itself later in the story of God and in human history, but it's always been who God is by his nature. In Genesis chapter one, God says, let us make man in our image, which some have said God is, is saying that because he's speaking like a king in the plural, and that may very well be so, but God was three in one from the beginning. In Genesis chapter three, verse 15, whenever God is speaking to Satan after the temptation of Adam and Eve and the fall of man, he says this to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring." He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Pro proclaiming there in Genesis chapter three, verse 15 about Christ and the work of Christ. In John chapter one in the New Testament, it tells us in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In Colossians chapter one, it tells us that all things were made by him and through him and for him. Jesus was involved in creation. Jesus also shows up in the Old Testament. He shows up in the Old Testament and what we would call Christophanies. These are not theophanies, appearances of God, and they're not angels of the Lord that appear, but these are God in the flesh. Now, you need to understand that the Bible tells us the Lord appeared in the Old Testament, but yet the Bible also tells us that no one has ever seen God the Father. So if we can see the Lord in person, but no one has ever seen God the Father, then how is, it, is this possible? It is because the person of Jesus showed up in the Old Testament, in the garden, walking in the garden, appearing to Abraham in Genesis 18, wrestling with God in Genesis chapter 32. I believe this is who Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter six on his throne because John chapter 12 verse 41 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of them. I believe when God spoke to Moses face to face, this is uh, who he saw. I believe that it is very possible when there was one like the son of God in the fiery furnace, that it was Jesus and more in the Old Testament that shows us God showing up in the flesh. God, Christ is throughout the Bible. The entire Bible is about Jesus. He's involved in creation. He shows up in the Old Testament. He is symbolized in the Old Testament. Some theologians would call this typology or like service. We're not talking about allegory where we can kind of, you know, say, hey, this is allegorical to the relationship between God and man. No, we're talking about where God intentionally orchestrated human history to give us a foretaste, a foreshadow of who Jesus would be. He did this in Adam. Much of the New Testament tells us, including 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, that the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam 
became a life-giving spirit. We see in the first human created where birth was given to, our natural birth was given to everyone who would live, Christ would come and be the true Adam that would give us second birth. We see in Noah who God used to save uh, his people from the judgment of God that God would use Christ to save his people ultimately from the judgment of God. We see a priest called Melchizedek in Genesis that appeared not because of the law of man but because God had appointed him a priest. The Hebrews 7 says Christ came in the same way, appointed by God, not because of the law but because of the spirit of God. David, who was the king, was a foreshadow of the real king, Psalm 110, Jesus tells us. I mean, Psalm 110, Jesus, it tells us about. Jonah was into the belly of the great fish for three days and came back uh, from the belly of the fish, Jesus would go into the belly of hell and be brought back, uh, a belly of death, and be brought back uh, to rescue us. The Passover lamb was a, f- a foreshadowing of Christ who would be the ultimate Passover lamb. And I could keep going on and on in the Old Testament. He was symbolized in the Old Testament. He was involved in creation. He shows up in the Old Testament. He is symbolized in the Old Testament. And he is spoken of by the prophets. Thousand years before Jesus was born, Isaiah says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah also says in Isaiah chapter nine, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there shall be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In Psalm 22 verse 1, David speaking, foreshadowing Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also says in Psalm 22 verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. In verse, in Psalm 16, verse 10, it says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. Isaiah also says, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And we could spend all morning going through the prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ Jesus. When Christ says on the cross, it is finished. What is finished? All of the prophecies that were spoken of in the Old Testament, the work of God justifying his people was finished in Christ. And so Jesus, after raising from the dead, pay attention to this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's go on to verse 28. It says, so they drew near to the village which they were going. He acted as if they were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened 
to us, the scriptures. Jesus had clearly walked with these two two disciples for a few hours interpreting the scriptures. And as he had this meal with them, their eyes were opened. The text tells us that he vanished from their sight. The language here certainly indicates that he just miraculously disappeared. Remember, this is the resurrected, glorified Jesus. Now, I don't have a problem if you uh, want to explain this away in a more natural sense. But if that explanation is because you don't find it possible for Jesus to have vanished, we do have a problem. Now, they say, did not our hearts burn within us? That is exactly what it sounds like. They're saying there's like this fire inside of us. Notice what brought about that fire. While he talked to us on the road, when he opened the scriptures. The fire of Christianity is rooted in the words of Jesus. The fire of Christianity is rooted in the words of Jesus. They said it burned in our hearts. This this passion, this fire came into us, overtook us. But as he opened the scriptures. Today, a lot of people long for a passion, long for purpose, Seek Christianity to be where they find it and become very committed to things that they think will bring about that fire. And what I hope you hear today is that that fire, that passion that burns, that is not quenched, is deeply rooted in the words of Jesus. Not tradition, not experiences, not spirituality, in the words of Jesus. There is spirituality in the Bible, but the Bible is not primarily about spirituality. It is primarily about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is power in the Bible, but it is not primarily about power. It is primarily about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is morality in the Bible, but the Bible is not primarily about the morality It is primarily about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is religion in there, but it is not primarily about religion. It is primarily about Jesus. There is tradition in there, but it is not primarily about tradition. It is primarily about Jesus. There are experiences in there, but it is not primarily about experiences. It is primarily about Jesus. There are meaningful ways to have relationships in there, but it is not primarily about meaningful ways to have relationships. It is primarily about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we want a sustaining, God-honoring, God-centered movement of God, it must be deeply connected to the words of Jesus. And the Spirit of God in the life of a believer, as Jesus will say, hey, wait on the Spirit. He says that. It will come. He says that in verse 49. It will come to you. It illuminates the Word of God and it inspires believers with how to live the Word of God but it is deeply rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ and his words. And if you say that you are a student of the word, I'll just say this, you cannot really make any sense of it unless you understand that it is not centered around you and me. It is centered around Jesus. 
And if you are serious about Jesus, you are serious about the word. And if you are serious about the word, you are serious about Jesus. Those things are connected together. People tell me, eh, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm a Jesus person. I'm like, why, you know, do you study the scriptures? I'm more of a Jesus person. If you're a Jesus person, you're a scripture person. Because Jesus was about the scriptures. Jesus, in his 40 days on earth, with the disciples, do you know what he did? He taught the scriptures. He pointed them to the scriptures. And if you're a person of the word who studies the scriptures, but the gospel fruit is not ringing true in your life, then you are approaching the Bible in the wrong way. Now, we read Luke chapter 24, verse 33 through 43 last week. What happens is these two disciples return to to the disciples and they tell them what they saw. Then Jesus shows up and he comes there and he eats, shows them his hands and feet. And even though Jesus' audience has expanded, his strategy is consistent. Look at verse 44 now. Verse 44, it says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus says, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Indicative that this is the same Jesus who they walked with before the crucifixion. They're walking now with the same Jesus post-resurrection. And indicative that he was teaching them the scriptures and how they pointed to him. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, it says. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and see who he was. That's what God does. God uses his word to open eyes to Jesus. That's why he calls here for the proclamation of his word so that eyes would be opened to see who he is. Does the word of God contain all there is to know about life and all there is to know about God? No, even the Bible says that. John chapter 21, verse 25 says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But it is the basis for which we understand who God is, pointing ultimately to the full revelation of God in Christ, to where we understand how to live our lives. And I would question you, if you're looking for new truth, but you haven't mastered the known truth. And you haven't mastered the known truth. And if you are seeking to honor Christ, if you are seeking to live a life following Jesus, understand this, the scriptures are not the side dish of Christian living. They are the entree. It is not Jesus and I'll, get, I'll read the Bible when I want a spiritual snack. It is not let's get together and let's worship God and let's hear about how we can live better and hopefully we throw some Bible verses in there. 
This is the meat of what it means to be a Christ follower. This is how you do not remain famished, desperate, and hungry, even though you've been a follower of Jesus for how many decades you say that you are following Jesus. The scripture is what Christ himself focused his ministry on. I am saying this to you not because we're Baptist or we're the church that focuses on the Bible. Do not hear any of that. My goal is that Christ would be exalted, that he would be elevated, that he would be followed, that he would be honored. And if we are people who say we want to do that, then we must understand he pointed to this. They point to him and they tell us who he was from Genesis to Revelation. Why he suffered, that he is risen from the dead, and how God planned all of that. And this is why repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, starting right there in Jerusalem, starting right here in our lives. This is what God is doing, and the word reveals our part in that. I'll take you to Isaiah chapter 42. One of the prophecies that help us understand the story of God. I'm just gonna read verse five through seven. Isaiah chapter 42, verse five through seven says this. Thus says, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Perhaps this morning, there's an area of your life that is covered in darkness. Perhaps you are walking in darkness. I plead with you, I urge you, I beg you, I don't know what other word to say. Maybe turn to the scriptures. The scriptures that point us to the light. And maybe if you begin to read these scriptures, God will open your eyes and you're struggling in your marriage or in other relationships and how to navigate those waters. You're facing uncertainty. Financially, you don't know what to do. Whatever it is, you are going through, God will speak to you. And as you open the scriptures, you will see that God has breathed his word so that we would not walk in darkness, but we would have light. And you will ultimately come to see that God's word has become flesh and it has dwelt among us. And God's word, fully revealed in the name of Jesus, 
is the word that will be on the lips of every person when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is God to the glory of God the Father. So today, if you're walking in darkness, turn to the light of Christ revealed to us in God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that when you rose from the dead, Jesus, you showed us what is most important in our lives. And that is that we turn to you and we hear from you. And God, I pray today that maybe for the first time, Someone who's living their life, I don't care how much they attach your name to it, living your life in darkness would see that you are the light of the world and that the word of God is a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. And they, they would not take one step forward or make one decision without seeking the counsel of your word. God, your word does not return void. And so, Lord, may they turn to it. And for those of us who are found in Christ, may we submit every area of our life to you. May we trust in your word in every single aspect of our life. So, God, help us to be committed to hearing from you and seeing you and the word you breathed out for us and your grace. What a gift it is. Help us to respond by hearing and obeying you. In Jesus' name, amen.